Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. I am recording today's podcast from my hotel room here in New Orleans, where I am at the investment conference. And it was good to see some of my podcast listeners, some of my clients earlier today down at my booth. I'm looking forward to meeting more of my listeners and clients uh, as the conference progresses. But I wanted to uh, come back up and record a podcast today. We did manage to see the major stock market averages finishing out a volatile week to the upside, but most of the indexes were down today, probably dragged lower by Apple, which reported its earnings after the bell yesterday, and Apple stock dropped about 7% or so on the day. And, you know, Apple did manage to beat their numbers as far as their profits, but they did warn about a slowdown in sales. And interestingly enough, the main reason that Apple was able to beat uh, the number was because they are able to sell their phones at higher prices. You know, I don't know if you've bought a new iPhone lately, but they are getting very expensive. And the way Apple is making money, they're not selling more phones. They're just getting more money for the phones that they're selling. And, you know, the government likes to claim that there's no inflation. Well, clearly, if you bought a new iPhone, that's one of the many ways that you are experiencing inflation. Now, I'm sure when they run the iPhone through the hedonic adjustments on the CPI, they, they're probably not even going up in price. They're probably going down because obviously every iPhone is better than the one before. They come up with something new to improve it. And so the government says, well, it's been improved. So even though it costs more, we're going to score it as a price cut. And so it's not actually going to add to the inflation. It's going to subtract from the inflation. But all this is nonsense. It doesn't matter if the phone is a little bit better. What matters is what you have to pay to buy it. 
what the CPI should be measuring is what is the cost of the newest iPhone. And if the cost of the newest iPhone is going up, if you want to have the latest and the greatest in the iPhone, it's more expensive. It doesn't matter that it's a little bit better. The fact of the matter is you have to dig deeper into your pocket if you want to buy one. You know, that's what's going on across the board. I'm reading a lot of articles this past week. Wall Street Journal even had a really good one. I think the title was um, your... Uh, Big Mac and Coke comes with a side order of inflation. And they went over a lot of products uh, that are being, you know, where prices are going up. A lot of companies are passing on higher costs uh, to their consumers in the form of higher prices. This is going on across the board. That is the real reason that the bond market got beat up today. It's not the better than expected jobs numbers, which I'm going to get to, but it's the inflation. It's, yes, wages are part of that. We had a year-over-year increase in wages of 3.1%. So the price of labor is just one of the prices that are going up, but the price of a lot of things is going up. The yield on the 10-year bond up to 3.214% today. That's not a new high. We were a little higher, I think, at one point last week. We will take out the high, I think, next week. The 30-year yield already hit a new high for the year. In fact, it's probably a high going back six, seven, eight years. I forget how many. But we're at 3.453, and that means the yield curve is now widening a bit, and I expect the yield curve to get a lot wider. Remember, I never believed that we were going to invert. I thought that inflation would cause the yield curve to widen, and that is exactly what is happening. Of course, mortgage rates are probably going to hit five and a quarter next week. I think they were about 5.1-ish at the end of this week, but that doesn't take into account the backup in rates that we saw today. Those will be effective in the mortgage market probably come Monday. And if we have a little bit more follow-through, I mean, I think we can be up 5.3. The refis are already around 5.2, 5.25 before the increase. So obviously, the cost to refinance the mortgage going up, that whole industry is pretty much going to dry up because nobody is really going to be able to refinance a mortgage when the current interest rates are so much higher than the interest rates that already exist on, on, on people's loans. And that is you know, removing a lifeline that a lot of Americans have been relying on for a long time is the ability to you know, refinance your mortgage, extract equity, get cash, and also reduce your payments. This is not going to happen. You know, obviously, if people want to buy houses now, the cost of buying a house is much higher. That's why I've been talking about on this podcast, you've got the weakest home sales market in a decade out on the West Coast, and it's about to get a lot weaker. In fact, everything that Americans buy on credit is going to be a lot more expensive. That's why you're seeing the collapse in the auto market. But of course, the bigger problem is going to be all the debt that everybody is carrying from previous uh, consumption, from previous borrowing. All that debt is going to become more and more expensive to service, and that means Americans aren't going to have as much disposable income. Even though wages are rising for people that have jobs, the cost of living is rising faster, but the cost of servicing their debt is rising even faster than that. But let's go to the the jobs numbers. And this probably contributed to uh, the volatility today. In fact, today you had another 500-point swing in the Dow Jones. It was up about 200 early on. 
and then it went down 300 uh, later in the day, and it managed to pair those losses before the close. The Dow was only down about 109 points. The NASDAQ was a bit weaker. You know, the um, NASDAQ down 77 points, so just over 1%. Apple, of course, is both a component of the Dow and the NASDAQ, so it was weighing down both indexes. But I probably had a bigger impact on the NASDAQ because of the sympathy declines in other technology stocks. The Russell 2000, I think the loan index to close uh, in the black up uh, just three points. So not quite two tenths of one percent. But again, you know, the usual suspects keep getting clobbered. GE down again, another three percent. $9.29. The stock continues to evaporate. And again, this is another dead canary that all the coal miners are ignoring. IBM continues to fall down another 1%. These are bellwether stocks, right? GE, IBM. When you have these stocks hitting eight-year lows, nine-year lows, when their bottom is dropping out, this is telling you that there's something going on here and everybody just wants to continue to be in denial. You know, look at GoPro, which, you know, that's an old name. Uh, nobody's probably talked about that since the heyday of its IPO. But that stock was down 23% today. I mean, down to $5.44 uh, because they, they missed their earnings. Now, that stock, when this thing came out in a frenzy, Back in July of 2014, people paid as high as $90 a share to get some GoPro. Now it's $5.44. You know, that's not even a new record low. We actually were lower 442 before we had a rally, but it looks to me like that low is going to get taken out uh, pretty soon. But that just shows you, again, an example of the enthusiasm that investors can display when you get something new and something hot and everybody wants to gobble it up and they forget how quickly these things are commoditized and how easy it is for other companies to come into the market and compete away those profits. And the next thing you know, there goes their business. But I want to um, get to the the um, non-farm payroll number. This is the big number that came out. And maybe initially because the number was good, the market rallied. Although I think the real reason that the market rallied at in the morning is because we had a big rally in Asia last night. There was some rumor that there was going to be some type of trade deal uh, between China and and the United States. And when that rumor came out, everybody bid up these Asian stocks. And so the U.S. stock market, U.S. futures that also trade, you know, in the evening, they got bid up. So initially, U.S. futures were way down on the Apple news. But then when this rumors came out about a trade deal, then uh, the markets rallied. And I think part of the reasons that people wanted to believe that there might be a trade deal is because everybody knows the election is coming up on Tuesday and maybe the president is looking to do something between now and then in order to A, make the market rally, but B, uh, be able to claim victory. Like, aha, like another deal, like he claimed victory uh, with, you know, the USMCA, you know, I got rid of NAFTA and now we have this new deal, which is basically the same deal we had before, just with a different name. But he's able to pretend that he kept some kind of a promise. And now we've got a great deal. And whereas the old NAFTA was the worst deal in the history of deals, the one that he's got, which is virtually identical, is the best deal in the history of deals. But I thought maybe he would do something similar to that. 
uh, with China. And you come up with some ridiculous agreement that basically does nothing and then talk about how great it is. Uh, but apparently not. Although maybe they can still do that on Monday. I guess if they really want to wait till the last minute and come up with some kind of bogus deal. Uh, but people believe the rumors. But then this morning, Larry Kudlow was on CNBC early in the morning before the open, basically shooting that rumor down, uh, saying there was no deal. Uh, but despite that, uh, the U.S. market still opened higher, and despite the fact that Apple gapped down on those earnings, I think people were still excited by the fact that we had a strong jobs report, at least strong by the, the low bar that we have chosen uh, to measure employment gains by in this country, because, you know, 200,000 jobs a month in an economy the size of ours, especially given how few people or what a large percentage of the workforce is not working, uh, we should be creating a lot more than 200,000 jobs a month, uh, but we're not. Now, the number that we got for October was supposed to be a rebound from the 134,000 jobs that we got in the prior month that was supposedly impacted by hurricanes. And in fact, we did get a small revision to that number. That went down to 118,000 from 134,000, so maybe even a bigger impact than what was originally thought on the um, the jobs in that month. But we got 250,000 jobs created in the month of October, beating 190,000 by 60,000 jobs. 190 was the expectation. This is exactly what Trump probably wanted. Uh, in order to brag about these jobs between now and the elections on Tuesday. Not that I'm saying that Trump had any influence over this number. It just is a you know, fortunate coincidence for the Republicans at Trump that they do have a good jobs number. Now, again, who knows? They could revise this thing down uh, after the election. But for now, it's 250,000, which is a solid number. I mean, it's exactly 250, not 249, nine something or two. I mean, I mean, I find it hard to believe that we got exactly 250,000 jobs on the nose. Right. That just seems a little weird to me. Unemployment rate. 3.7%. That was unchanged from the prior month. Private payrolls, though, really had a nice jump. 246,000 even uh, of the payrolls. Obviously, they must be rounding these numbers up, right, to get to get all these even numbers. But 246,000 of the 250,000 were private sector jobs. Manufacturing apparently created 32,000 jobs, exactly. Uh, they were looking for 13,000, so a beat there as well. Labor force participation rate actually inched up to 62.9. Now, we've been at 62.9 before. It seems like we keep, you know, kind of ping-ponging between 62.7 and 62.9. That's what we've pretty much been doing uh, for the last couple of years. So we were at 62.7 last month. Now we're back at 62.9. We're probably going back down to 62.7. That has been the trend. Average hourly earnings were up 0.2. That matched the consensus, but that brought the year-over-year -year increase to 3.1%, which was one-tenth of a percent ahead of what the consensus was. And I think the markets are very nervous, and rightly so, about that number. But not just the wages going up, but all the other prices that are going up that are driving interest rates higher. And interest rates 
are only starting to go up. They're still ridiculously low, and they have no place to go but up as long as the Fed stays out, and that's what they're doing. In fact, the Fed is going to continue uh, to increase short-term interest rates, which means long-term interest rates should continue to move up even faster given how much higher inflation is going to go because we're just getting started with inflation. I mean, we've barely seen uh, what what's coming because all this inflation is a result of the money that has been printed over the years to finance QE1 and QE2 and, and QE3 and everything that we've done since the financial crisis, the Federal Reserve has created a tremendous amount of inflation in order to finance it. They've printed all this money and now all this money is finally having a bigger effect on prices. As money loses value, then you need more money to buy stuff. But, you know, when people were talking today about how impressive the numbers are, the jobs numbers are, this is this booming economy, we're creating 250,000 jobs, although, you know, you average them out for the last few months, it's, you know, just barely over 200,000. This was this was the, the, the biggest one we've had, uh, but obviously we had a quite a weak one the month before. But in order to create these jobs, the United States is going deep into debt. We are borrowing a lot of money. And if you're going to borrow a lot of money, you can temporarily create some service sector jobs. I mean, clearly, if we're running record budget deficits and record trade deficits and everybody is levered up, you know, spending all that borrowed money creates some jobs. But those jobs are not sustainable because the debt is not sustainable. The consumption based on debt is not sustainable. In fact, you know, everybody looks at the uh, jobs numbers that come out, but nobody looks at the trade data that comes out on the same day. In fact, it comes out at exactly the same time as the job report. We got the trade numbers for September, and this is the unified budget. So it's not just a merchandise deficit, which was at a record high. This is the uh, deficit, which includes uh, services, and the United States runs a surplus in services. So our service surplus offsets our goods deficit. But um, they were looking for a deficit of $53.5 billion, and instead we got $54 billion, so an, an extra half a billion. And they even revised last month's deficit slightly higher to a bigger deficit. It went from 53.2 to 53 We had record imports, so our imports were the highest they've ever been, and our trade deficit with China was the largest it's ever been. Now, I just don't get this because, again, Donald Trump keeps talking about how we're winning the trade war. We're winning, we're winning, yet we're losing. If winning the trade war means our trade deficit is coming down, that's not what's happening. If the purpose of the trade war is to reduce the deficit with China. And if today we found out that in the month of September, China's surplus hit a new all-time record high, that means China is running surpluses now that are larger than any of the surpluses that China ran under previous administrations. Now, supposedly, these previous administrations were all incompetent, right? They didn't know what they were doing, and that's why we had these big deficits. But apparently now, the deficits are even bigger. Now, maybe Trump could say, well, this is going to change after we get this great new agreement, and then the trade surpluses are going to come down, and our, our deficits are going to come down. But if that's the case, 
by what measure could you claim victory now? You can't say we're already winning. You could say you're hoping that we're going to win, that we're going to come from behind, right, and, and win this thing. But clearly, as of right now, if you're keeping score, we are losing. We're losing the trade war. We're hoping to pull out a, a miracle finish by coming up with some great agreement that reverses this trend. But as of right now, even with all these tariffs, and again, Trump imposed the tariffs, right? So if his other predecessors were too stupid to put on tariffs, if these tariffs were actually doing something, we can't see it in the numbers because the numbers are getting worse despite the tariffs. But my point is, if we're running these record trade deficits, we're running these huge budget deficits, right? We cut income taxes and we increase government spending. We're giving everybody money to spend. And so people go out and spend. And in the short run, yes, you know, you could goose up the economy and you can create some unsustainable jobs. But just because we have these jobs today doesn't mean these jobs are going to be here tomorrow. Look, just because GoPro stock went up to $90 a share when people were pouring money into it, that doesn't mean it's going to stay there. I said it's at $5 now. Reality has a, a, a habit of, of rearing its ugly head and it doesn't do it right away. Sometimes you have to wait. And so these jobs that we're creating right now are just as sustainable as a $90 price for GoPro because that price was just based on an extrapolation of what had happened in the past and thinking it would continue into the future without actually looking at the consequences of how markets work and how competition comes in. And so people who are looking in the rearview mirror now at these jobs numbers and think this is sustainable – you don't understand the dynamics at play here. Don't understand why we were able to create these jobs. They were a function of artificially low interest rates and elevated asset prices that created a wealth effect and the increased consumer confidence associated with that that, you know, that enabled all this extra spending. But this is going to quickly come to an end as all the debt catches up with us like it always does and interest rates go up and asset prices come down. And the asset prices are already coming down, right? Even though the jobs numbers are still up, the asset prices are coming down. You can see stock prices coming down. You can see real estate prices coming down. You can see companies having problems with their earnings, right? Guiding lower telling Wall Street that we're not going to sell as much in the future as we thought. The holiday season is going to be coming in week. Companies are reporting cost pressures, right? The prices are rising. Their material prices are rising. Wage costs are rising. So that means profits are going to come down. Prices are going to go up. All of this is going to weigh heavily on a over-leveraged economy. So looking at some of these numbers, yeah, they may look strong now, looking in the rearview mirror, but just open your eyes and look through the windshield and see what is going on and just connect the dots. And remember that every boom has been followed by a bust. Every time the Fed is able to engineer a phony recovery based on cheap money, whenever they take that cheap money away, the recovery goes away with it, and we're back in recession. The difference between this next recession and the previous ones is the Fed was still able to revive the party. They were still able to restart it with another round of money printing, another round of inflation. They were able to lower interest rates and get asset prices to go back up and kind of restart everything. But at this point, they're done. 
They can't do it anymore. We've already been to zero. We can't really go any lower. We've already blown up the balance sheet. We can't make it any bigger. So the Fed is all in at this point when it comes to monetary stimulus. That's why this next recession is going to be so horrific because there's no way for the Fed to artificially make it feel better, right? Their, their Novocaine isn't going to work anymore, so we're just going to have to deal with the pain, and it's going to be a lot worse than what we've experienced in the past. And again, this is not just going to be a recession where consumers get a break uh, on the cost of living. The cost of living is going to go up. This is stagflation that we've having here. We had such a long lag. The Fed was able to create so much money, much more money than it's ever been able to create before, right? So the, the inflationary pipelines are flooded. And so by the time this thing hits, right, it's just a tsunami and nobody is expecting it. And we've already basically ensured that our trading partners are not going to come to the aid of the dollar like they have in the past. I mean, that's what's really put a floor beneath the dollar is the rest of the world trying to prevent the dollar from falling so that uh, their currencies would not gain too much value against the dollar in relationship to other countries that were they're competing with. But given uh, the trade war that we have and given the tariffs and given the animosity that the United States has created between us and our trading partners, and, and given the stigma now that is uh, going to be associated with currency manipulating and not wanting to be seen as, as a manipulator. And I think because so many of these countries have recently experienced some economic pain of their own, associated with a weak currency and rising interest rates. See, one of the things that you see in some of the emerging markets is their currencies falling against the dollar. The result is higher interest rates, higher inflation, and that's bad for the economy. Well, Americans are about to get a taste of that medicine themselves because we're going to have a weakening dollar. We're going to have rising inflation at the same time that we have an economic recession. And again, the Fed doesn't have a playbook for this, right? The Fed, in theory thinks they know how to fight recession, right? You create money, you stimulate. And they think they know how to fight inflation. You tighten up on money, you raise interest rates. But what they don't know how to do is how to fight both at the same time. How do you tighten and ease simultaneously? Obviously, you can't. So the stagflation, they've got nothing. That is why they, they just want to ignore the possibility. I mean, that's why when they did those stress tests, the Fed did not want to stress test stagflation because they don't know what to do with stagflation because they're in a box. You can't fight recession and inflation at the same time, given the Keynesian remedies for both. Now, really, what the Fed needs to do to fight inflation and recession is they need to allow interest rates to rise and focus on the inflation and putting a floor beneath the dollar and just letting the recession run its natural course because you shouldn't fight recession. You, what you should do is not cause the bubbles that cause the phony recoveries that make the recessions necessary. If you're not going to do the time, then you don't do the crime. And the crime that the Fed committed was creating the boom. And if you're going to do that, then you got to endure the bust. In the past, we haven't done that. We've simply kicked the can down the road, but now we're going to have to deal with, with this bust. 
And so what the Fed has to do is fight inflation, defend the dollar, and allow the markets to restructure the economy, allow the house of cards to collapse, allow all the malinvestments to be liquidated, allow stock prices to fall, allow real estate prices to fall, allow loans to go into default, allow investors to lose money, depositors to lose money, force the government to slash spending on Social Security, on Medicare, on pensions, uh, maybe, you know, uh, restructure the national debt. I mean, a lot of very painful decisions are going to have to be made if the Fed decides to fight inflation, which is what it should do. It should fight inflation and preserve the value of the dollar. But that forces to the forefront all of the tough political choices that nobody has wanted to make. The easy way out is to try to delay the game one more time by fighting recession instead of inflation. But that is only going to buy a very short amount of time. Because I think if the Fed does that, and that's exactly what I expect them to do, then inflation is going to roar very, very fast, and the Fed is not going to have a choice. Because once the inflation numbers are that high, I mean, once you're looking at double-digit inflation, even the way the government uh, measures it, and could you imagine if we got to 10% inflation the way the government keeps score, how high it would actually be. But the U.S. cannot allow that to happen because that means, you know, the dollar is obviously not going to be the reserve currency if it's got that kind of rate of inflation. So the government is going to now have to be forced to do the things that it should have done a lot sooner. And now it's going to be a lot more painful. Of course, if they don't do those things at all, then it is hyperinflation. And I, I still don't think that hyperinflation, you know, Argentina, Weimar Republic style, Zimbabwe style hyperinflation, I don't think that is the most probable outcome. It is a possibility. Most people have no idea. They dismiss it completely. It actually is a real possibility. In fact, that's exactly what we will have if we continue down this path. I'm just thinking that, you know, when push comes to shove, we will eventually get off this path. But things are going to get a lot worse uh, before they do. But for now, you know, it's the calm before the storm. As I said on the last podcast, nobody is worried about this uh, correction. Nobody is worried that it's a bear market. Nobody cares about interest rates going up. Nobody cares about prices going up. Everybody is just, you know, convinced that if anything goes wrong, the Fed's got our back, right? That, um, to the extent that the economy does slow down or the Fed can reverse course and cut rates or if inflation does pick up more than people think, well, the Fed could just increase the rate at which it raises interest rates. And nobody is worried that any of this is a problem, right? You can have record amounts of debt. You could be levered up to the max. We could have already gone through uh, the 2008 financial crisis, which completely caught people by surprise. Nobody saw that coming. It was almost economic Armageddon. We managed to save ourselves through this massive uh, TARP and government stimulus. Yet, having gone through that, having narrowly escaped that catastrophe, everybody is completely confident that there's absolutely nothing to worry about, even though all the problems that led to the 2008 financial crisis are so much larger today than they were then. When I was discussing the markets earlier in the podcast, I neglected to comment on what was going on with the dollar and gold because we did have some interesting action over the last couple of days. Yesterday, the dollar had a big drop. You know, the dollar index had actually gotten above 
97. In fact, it was the first close above 97 of this move. And then on Thursday, the dollar index dropped almost a full point. We closed down at 96. 27. In fact, intraday, we were a point lower. And there were many currencies that were up more than 1% against the dollar. And that weakness in the dollar sent the price of gold up about $18 an ounce. Uh, Not quite a new high for this move, but a lot of strength in the price of gold. The interesting thing is, even though the dollar gained back some of what it lost on today's better than expected non-farm payroll number, and big backup in interest rates, the dollar didn't gain much, right? It gained about a quarter of what it lost. Same thing with gold. I mean, gold was only down about a dollar, you know, closed around 1,232. And gold stocks were kind of mixed. Some were up a little, some were down a little. So I thought that was pretty impressive that gold managed to hang on to almost all of yesterday's gain. And the dollar failed to recoup much of yesterday's loss, despite the action that happened today, not only the better than expected jobs report, but the news that there is no progress uh, when it comes to uh, the trade dispute with China. So we'll see what happens next week if we can get some follow through to the downside to the uh, to the dollar and in the upside to the price of gold. Cryptocurrencies, again, very, very quiet. No movement at all out of Bitcoin. There, you know, obviously that's going to break at some point. Everybody seems to think that the move is going to be up. It's possible, but I wouldn't want to bet on it. To me, it seems much more likely that the move is going to be down, just like it's down, I think, in the overall market. I think that the bubbles have popped. The risk assets are going down. I think the owners of these assets are in denial, just like people are in denial about the economy. They want to believe that everything is great, uh, but reality should show them that it's not. We're going to see, too, on Tuesday, uh, we will get the, uh, the results of the midterm elections, and we'll see if the Republicans losing uh, the House of Representatives uh, puts a little damper on this parade. In fact, you know, I heard people talking about it today and they were thinking that if the Democrats were to take uh, the House or maybe even Congress, that that would actually be bullish for bonds because it would mean that more rounds of tax cuts would be uh, less likely. And that if the Republicans maintain Congress, that the odds of more tax cuts are higher and that's going to be bad for the bond market. I actually think it's the reverse. I think that the worst thing for the bond market would be that the Democrats actually take both houses of Congress, because if that happened, it doesn't seem like they're going to take the Senate. But even if they make progress in the Senate and they take the House, I think that the next big bargain that Trump is going to strike is going to be for lots of increases in government spending, particularly in infrastructure and things like that. And I still think that the Democratic Congress will pass another tax cut as long as the tax cut is limited uh, to the middle class, right? They're all for tax cuts that don't reduce the marginal rate. But if you can throw out a vote getting tax to the middle class and combine that with more government spending, Those are the type of tax cuts that Democrats could sign on for. So I actually think the worst thing that can happen fiscally would not be for the Republicans to keep Congress, 
but for the Democrats to take Congress, because normally when the Democrats are in Congress and the Republicans are in the minority, they become fiscally responsible. But they're not going to do that so long as Trump is the president. And they've already proven that they're fiscally reckless. So I don't see how the Republicans who now, when they voted for tax uh, cuts and said the deficits don't matter, I don't see how they flip on a dime next year and try to oppose any kind of increase in spending that the Democrats want or even targeted tax cuts that the Democrats want by claiming that we can't afford it because we'll increase the deficit. They've already blown their opportunity to do that, and they would look like complete hypocrites if they tried it, and I don't expect them to try it, nor do I expect any pressure from Trump. (laughs) 